Alright, so we're in collection 6 in the book of Proverbs. This is the words of Agur. And so, we've gone through collection 1, the first 9 chapters. It's focused on the child or the youth. We have considered the book has a purpose statement there at the beginning. It's to know wisdom and instruction. To perceive the words of understanding. To receive the instruction of success justice, judgment, and equity. And there's a thesis for us in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The book seeks to impress upon us the dangers of sin and to help us to have a proper fear of the Lord. In collection 2, on page two, you can see there, it's twelve and a half chapters. That one is the 375 Proverbs of Solomon. The book is titled initially with referring to titles, uh, Proverbs of Solomon, and then we get into the next one, and it's the 375 Proverbs of Solomon. And we start to move from the child to sort of the young man, getting into adulthood. And I have a quote down there from Bruce Waltke that explains... Uh, how he understands the structure there to be. So that's sort of the filling in for the outline and structure there, if you want to read about that. Collection two, three, is two chapters. And we sort of move a little bit more mature adult, but it, it kind of recaps in 30 sayings what has come before. It's a, it's a capturing, it's a distilling, it's a, it's a pulling down into a, a smaller number of sayings using the heads of doctrine. And we've walked through the structure of that before. And so, if we look at that, those 30 sayings, they have an appendix, so to speak, when we get to Collection 4. Collection 4 is a transition section. And it sort of moves from the young man and the adult into thinking about leadership issues. And so, the, the issues laid out there, the further sayings of the wise, it's a very short chunk, and it serves as a bridge to help us to see that we're moving into the leader group. We get into collection five, and remember that's sort of the middle management set of Proverbs. It focuses on the father, the leader, but it's more more the courtier than the king. The person who's in power, but is not necessarily the most powerful. And so there's the conflict between the righteous and the wicked in the halls of power, and this idea that it's not just the king that matters, but it's also the advisors of the king. It's the officials, the ministers. And so there's this importance to be able to know how to persuade leaders and to be able to do righteous battle against the wicked, even in the halls of power, even when they're trying to mask themselves. And at the same time, it talks about the importance of not forgetting the things that came before, the things that helped to get you to a place of management and prominence. You need to retain them. You can't stop managing your own household. You can't stop managing your own property. If you fail to do those things, if you fail to maintain your friendships, then what happens is you lose your ability to govern. And so we're reminded of all of those things. There's also a reminder there to deal with being careful with the poor as you exercise power. And remembering God, even as you're in power. Do not forget Him in prosperity. So we get into Collection 6, which is where we are now. And Collection 6 is Wisdom for Kings. 
It's a wisdom for governors to help them to understand human nature and to help them to be humble. It is the sayings of Agur, son of Jacob. Now, I have an in-depth outline for you on page 4 of this section. And the title headings that I've got throughout in the bright orange also match with that. And so, in essence, it comes down to, there's a very brief introduction, a very brief conclusion, and the middle body is made up of a series of sayings that are numerical. So, collection seven, when we get there soon, is the sayings of Lemuel. And who's Agor? Who's Lemuel? There's Solomon. These are other names. He's also known as Jedediah. You find different names for Solomon. Great men often end up with many nicknames, partly because they're well-known and people refer to different things about them. And some of these are names that are given to them in more private relationships. There's a um, you think about the fact that in the book of Revelation we're told that there's a name that only Christ knows for us, right? And that's about the intimacy of the relationship, the communion that we have with Christ. And so Lemuel seems to be a name, for example, that his mother gave to him. And Agur seems to be a name that is something about the relationship between Solomon and his father. Now, before I proceed there, I want to say verse 1 is a hotly disputed verse in terms of how to interpret it. And so what I put forward, I think, is right, that Agur is Solomon. And the reason I think that in part is because the whole book is the Proverbs of Solomon. And so I think that what we have is different collections of the Proverbs of Solomon. Even the center section, even, even the collection from Hezekiah's men is really just Solomon's Proverbs put together by Hezekiah's men. Right? So I think we continue to see that in these latter collections as well. But so here's, here's how the New King James has it. Verse 1. The words of Agur, the son of Jacob, his utterance. This man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Eucal. So who are Ithiel? Who is Eucal? So I don't think that Ithiel and Eucal are necessarily names of individuals. Okay, so one, one reading to go through this, a common thing to say if you look at commentators, especially modern commentators, they will say Agur is some foreign wise man and Jacob is his dad. And so these are just foreign wise men statements and these were captured and incorporated into Proverbs. I don't believe that. I don't believe it for a second. The other popular view is to say that Agur is Hezekiah. Okay, I mean, so he pulled together some of the Psalms, the Proverbs of, of Solomon before. But this is sort of a... Modern scholars have a fetish with finding ways to multiply editors of biblical books. They just love it. Whenever they can find any excuse to just increase the number of editors of a book of the Bible, they just feel really happy. And they can get a new journal article out of it. It'll get published, I guarantee it. And they will get praise and praise and praise. So, 
the church and Jewish commentators have historically always said that Agur is Solomon. There are mystical interpretations to try to take this and make it all symbolic and to remove the claim from having any meaning. Um, and so let me, let me walk through with you now and explain what I understand the, the verse to be saying. So the word Agur, Jacob, Ithiel, and Eukol, these are all difficult words. Um, the word Agur as a name seems to be referring to the activity of collecting or gathering. So if you look at the, the, the original Hebrew, that's the closest related word. So the collector or gatherer, and it's in a noun form. So Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes is called Kohelet, which means the preacher or the one who calls together, the assembler. Okay? Ecclesiastes, the word ecclesia is the Greek word for the out calling, okay? The calling out. And so Ecclesiastes is sort of a, a Greek transliteration, and it comes from the word Kohelet. Okay, so the, the idea that there's taking this Hebrew word, Kohelet, turning it into the preacher, the ecclesiastical assembler, okay, and turning that into a Greek word, turning it into English. That's how you got the name Ecclesiastes for that book. So that name, there's a similar name. We have Solomon being called the gatherer, and he's also called the assembler. These are, these are sort of symbol, similar names. But in one, he's preaching to the people. And the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, it talks about how he did the work of gathering and organizing Proverbs. So this is appealing to that same idea. He is the gatherer of wisdom. He's the son of Jacob. Now, we all know who Solomon's dad was. It was David. And that word, Jacob, you can, you can find some ways to connect it to the idea of spitting out, um, being obedient, guarding, keeping. So a lot, of the, a lot of the translations like to try to make it so he's the, it's the son of the obedient one. But that's, that sort of takes away the context. The context we're talking about here is these are the words of the gatherer. The gatherer of what? Of wisdom sayings. The son of the keeper or the garter of the wisdom sayings. He's, he's the one who worked in them. David, David wrote so many psalms. David had so much wisdom. And he passed on teaching to his son. Think about the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is the teaching of a father to a son. Who was Solomon's dad? David. Who taught Solomon the wisdom in the book of Proverbs? David and Bathsheba. So, when you think about Proverbs 31, right, we're going to move into thinking about a chapter that is the teaching of Bathsheba to Solomon. And here we have teaching that is teaching from David to Solomon. And this time, it's David to Solomon teaching the wisdom that kings need. So the words of the gatherer, son of the keeper. And then it says his utterance, which is fine. These are words. These are words that are spoken. But the word here is the normal word that's translated burden. Like when you see like, this was the, the burden of the Lord, or this was the burden of, and then you have a prophet, right? 
or you'll see the word oracle. Okay, this is this is that term. So this is the Holy Spirit inspired words. This is why I don't think a gur is somebody outside of the church. Okay, this is this is a oracle. This is prophetic speaking. So these are the words of the gatherer, son of the keeper, the oracle. And it's the confession of the strong man. We have the, the word man, this man. Um, this man, the word there is gibor, okay, which is the strong man. That's what that means. It's not just man, it's not ish, it's not Adam, it's gibor. So we have the mighty man, the strong man. So we have the words of the gatherer, son of the keeper, the oracle, the confession of the strong man. And an ithiel is very similar to the term Emmanuel. It means God with us. So this, what's the confession of the strong man? The confession is to God with us, to God with us, and consumed. Jesus talks about how he's the bread of life. So there's this discussion here about God who is with us and the consumption of God. He's with us and he's consumed by us. How is that done? By his word. So these words, these are wisdom statements gathered by Solomon that were kept by David. And now, this is a confession of faith. And this confession of faith is about the God who is with us, the God who is with us and consumed. Now think about that for a second. He's the God who's consumed. He burned the bush and it was not consumed. Right? He was a fire that did not consume the bush. God himself is not consumed in any sort of way where he's diminished. The consumed there has to be understood very properly. He's consumed by us. He's not diminished in the consumption of him. As we eat him in, as we take him in, he's not diminished. But we take him into us. And so there's a filling that occurs. So now, here's the confession. Surely I am more stupid than any man and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. We have understanding, wisdom, and knowledge. I'll get mentioned here. So first, verse 2 is sort of either a hyperbole, if you keep the word any, or it's a startling truth to draw attention to what humanity is about. Okay, so I have a translation for you in A that I think is a little bit better to understand the sense of it. I am more like a beast than a man. Okay, the word stupid is fine, but the word is literally a brute or a beast. Okay, so I am more like a beast than a man. How so? And do not have the understanding of a man. Okay, so... The, the first term of man is just ish. It's the normal word for man. And then the last one is Adam. Okay, so I don't have the understanding that's appropriate to mankind is the idea there. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. So understanding, wisdom, knowledge of God, these are the things that make us most human. And when we don't have them, we are more brutish than like a man. And his point is, that he doesn't have these things in himself. 
The mind differentiates man from beast. The right use of the mind to possess and apply right content, right purpose, and right choice, right knowledge, holiness, righteousness, is to fulfill our call to work and keep and exercise authority rightly as a prophet, priest, and king. This is humanness. This is what it is to be human. To be an image bearer. So when we think about understanding... If, we're, if our purpose is to understand, to have wisdom, to know, we need to think about these things. Understanding. Understanding is to possess the meaning of a thing in one's mind. In other words, it's to have a right awareness of the content of a term or a proposition. To accurately grasp the definition or meaning of a truth claim is to have understanding. When we rightly understand who God claims to be, it becomes undeniable We think about him as the eternal one, and we can't abandon eternality. We think about him as the truth, and we can't abandon the need for truth. We start to understand the idea of who God is, what he's revealed about himself, and as we understand him, he becomes undeniable. And so if the Holy Spirit illuminates us to have an understanding that helps us to see the undeniability of God, we then gain wisdom, which is the knowledge of God. And that knowledge of the Holy One is a rationally justified true belief. We have an account of how the belief is certain to be true. Not having those things means you are closer to a beast than to a man as designed by God. So the knowledge of God is very important. It is very important for our salvation It's very important for our usefulness. It's very important for us to be human. Now, we have a duty to seek to understand things. And when we understand God and the law of God, we have what are called the double knowledge. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. The knowledge of the law of God shows us both when it's properly ordered. And so it's a mirror that shows us our own wickedness and God's holiness and our need of a Redeemer. And so notice how this moves. Go to page 6. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And this part's startling in the Old Testament. And what is his son's name? If you know. So we go from this idea of the ignorance, the ignorance of Agur, to how would you get out of this ignorance? It would require you to have a word from heaven. Who's ascended there? Who's descended from it? Well, first of all, we see back in Genesis even the ascending and descending of the angels. So there are messengers who can bring a word from heaven. Words come to prophets. And Solomon well knows this. He, he's even talking here about the burden, the oracle, right, that came from God. In addition to that, we also know that we have Christ who descends to the earth and ascends again into heaven at the right hand of the Father. 
So, let's think through this. Have you gone up to heaven to obtain the word of heaven? Have you come down to bring the word? No? Okay. Who has? Or maybe who will? If you're the original audience. God brings a word to us by direct revelation and by prophets, angels, and most of all, we have Christ descended to the earth from heaven. Now, there's a repetition here of questions that are meant to call us to think about the fact that only God could do this. Who has the wind in his fists? Who has the waters in a garment? And who established the ends of the earth? This is a poetic way of referring to the tripartite creation. Remember, you see this over and over again. The heavens, the earth, and the seas. You know, this is a different order. But the winds, the waters, and the ends of the earth, these are all synecdoches, the little part that represents the whole, referring to each of these. The heavens, the seas, and the land. So, God is the one who establishes all of these, who controls all of them, who can gather and bound and establish. And that language is also common. Bounding the waters. The idea of who is the one that prevents the waters from re-engulfing the lands. Who is the one that sets their boundaries and says no further? It's God. So these are reminders for us of much teaching throughout the Old Testament. So what's his name? Well, the name's been revealed. He's been talked about throughout the book of Proverbs. Capital L-O-R-D. Yahweh. What we have is the I am that I am. That's his name. I am that I am. And we have his son's name. Yeshua. Which is Yah and Shua. Which is Yahweh is salvation. And so you have the idea of I am that I am and Jesus. What's his name? What's his son's name? Now, we have these names. And we have them because we know. We have them and we know them because they've been revealed from heaven. We are epistemologically dependent upon God who reveals. And this gets emphasized now down into verse 5. Right, so we went from the idea of the double knowledge, the humility that we have here from the gatherer. He acknowledges his own inability to have knowledge. He looks at himself as ignorant and the sinfulness of that. And he looks to the knowledge of God. And then what we have with the gospel being laid out there and the Redeemer being brought to mind, we have now this teaching, verse 5. Every word of God is pure. He's a shield to those who put their trust in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. So, the Word of God has no errors. Every word, every letter is pure. Every jot and tittle. God's word gives knowledge without any admixture of error. Think about that. There's nothing in it that's false. Jesus argues for and proves the resurrection from the tense of a verb. The details of the word of God matter argues for and proves the resurrection from the tense of a verb. 
Now, God's word is powerful. It protects those who trust him, those who trust his word. It's not a difference. You trust his word, you trust him. And we're told to not add to his words. We're not supposed to go beyond what's written. His words are sufficient. If you add to them, God will rebuke you. You don't do God any favors when you try to fill in his deficiencies. If you add to them, God will rebuke you. And here's the thing. If you add to them, you're lying. You're lying that God said it, but you're also lying because what you're saying is false. You're making things up. You'll be found a liar. He providentially protects those who trust his word, and he providentially displays liars about his word. And so, hashtag false prophets. This is the doctrine of sola scriptura, the regulated principle of doctrine, the sufficiency of scripture, it's there. Why is this so hard for us to get? Why is this so hard for us to apply in the church? What is the deal with third millennium Christian churches and not holding on tightly to the sufficiency of Scripture. We have many roads that have been paved for us to understand what the Word of God says. The reason is because we want to look like the culture, we want to be accepted, and we don't like what God's Word says. That's why. So, we're shown that that's foolish. And what happens is, we move out of this, the acknowledgement of that wisdom... And what happens is there's an expression of further wisdom in a prayer. So we have the confession of Agur, in which he confesses his own need of epistemological salvation. He confesses that God possesses all knowledge, and he confesses that God gives that knowledge to us, not all of it, but some of it, to us in his word, which is pure. And we don't want to add to it, lest we be liars. So then, we get to his prayer. Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Right? He, this is, he's saying, okay, I've got two requests, and he asks for it twice. This is emphatic. We should pray emphatically to God. We are told of, by Jesus, the widow who repeatedly went to the judge, the persistent widow. Pleasant persistence. We're talking to God. The, but persistence. And so as we... Persist in asking God. Two things are request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Right? Answer this prayer before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal. And profane the name of my God. So first, think about the idea of keeping lying and liars away. Okay, keep falsehood and lies far from me. So this is essentially a prayer to ask, that says, you know, hallowed be your name. It caused me to know your name, caused me to fear your name, caused me to be zealous for your truth. There's a prayer here that your will be done. 
Right? The prayer here is to keep me from lying. There's also a prayer here to not be led into temptation, to remove liars and external lies from us. There's a lot of wisdom here. The hallowing of God's name, preventing us from lying, and keeping away temptations to believe falsehood or to lie. The idea here follows immediately upon the idea of not adding to God's words, lest you be found a liar. So there's a particular danger. The worst kind of lying is taking God's name in vain, right? Swearing falsely. Claiming this is from God's word when it's not. So this prayer to remove falsehood. Keep me from excess and poverty. That's the next part. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This is sort of the give us this day our daily bread petition. There's also a prayer here to lead us not into temptation, but to be delivered from evil, right? With the idea of temptation of excess and the temptation of poverty. And this concern about if if he falls into excess, the worry that that will lead to forgetting God. And if falling into poverty, the worry that that would lead to stealing, not trusting God, and using the arm of the flesh to provide for himself. We need to remember that one thing it said about Sodom is that Sodom was full of bread. Some people try to take that and say, well, the problem with Sodom, it didn't really matter that they were committing sodomy. That wasn't the big deal. It really matters that they had too much bread and they were proud. No. No, that matters too. Let's not diminish that. It's very popular to diminish sexual sins. The Bible talks a lot about sexual sin, and it says to avoid it, to flee from it, to run away, to not even touch the garment that is tainted. There is this running away from it, being careful to guard ourselves. But one of the things that happens that leads to sexual sin is pride. A reliance upon our own resources. And a sense that I'm powerful and I have things. And that can turn into an arrogance that commoditizes sex. And so there's this danger of the denial of God in pleasure-seeking and this danger of the pride from being full of bread and being forgetful toward God, thinking, we don't need God. I don't need God. How do you got to provide for me? I've got a storehouse. I've got a barn full of stuff. I don't need God. If we receive much, we should be grateful, apply His Word, pray and rejoicing, and sing psalms for praise and joy. The desire to use money as we see fit and be as God, being a law to ourselves, is a danger of having many resources. That's what is being revealed to us here by Solomon. On the other side, being poor, there's a similar danger. There's a similar danger. Here's the danger. The temptation of not trusting God to provide through lawful means. And instead, we become a law to ourselves and, through the arm of the flesh, seek to acquire and provide for ourselves. You see how it's the same Self-reliance, it's a reliance upon material things, is not a reliance upon God. Either one are temptations that go into relying upon creatures rather than God. 
Now, stealing profanes the name of God because we are a covenant people and we have the mark of God's name on us. We are a visible church. And we invisibly, if we're elect, are marked. And so it's important that we not commit sins that bring profanation on the name of God. It makes the church look the same as the world. That's the idea there. So here's the question. How do you avoid both extremes? Like, what's the exact amount you should have in your bank account? Is it like $1,537.12? Any more than that? And you have excess? What's wrong with you? Any less than that? You're not working hard enough. Right? It's poverty. <coughs> okay, well, let's consider it. I have a page for you. You have a calculation at the bottom with exactly how many dollars you should have in your account. All right, so how to avoid both extremes. Against excess, do not hoard. The Bible com- condemns hoarding. Filling your barns, just loading it up, saying, I'm going to have ease, I'm going to relax. Just, just filling it up. Hoarding is just having stuff just in case and having tons of it. When you get a lot of wealth, as opposed to hoarding it, putting it under your mattress, putting it in your barns, not selling it, you are to deploy capital. We had had earlier in Proverbs about the curse on the man that that just puts the stuff in his barns and the blessing on the man that sells it. And you go, if he sold it, he sold it for a profit. He's going to have more stuff. Yes. God is not condemning wealth or wealth production. He is condemning hoarding. Deploy capital. I have a list for you of ways to deploy capital. You should consistently take reasonable risk and trust God. Don't be a gambler. Be an investor. A gambler takes odds that are likely to result in loss. An investor takes odds that are likely to result in win. So the casino is not gambling. The odds are in their favor. The people who go, they're gambling. The odds are not in their favor. Don't be a gambler. Be an investor. Risk cannot be avoided. Risk should not be increased without an increase in potential or actual benefit. So you take on risk in exchange for things. Pray for wisdom, pray for strength, take your resources and deploy them. So here are some mechanisms to deploy capital. Tithing. God takes 10% off the top. Hospitality. Having people over to share in blessings with them and to speak with them. This is not entertaining. You can take money and you can blow a lot of money trying to have a grand old party and making a bunch of people have an enjoyable time that's mindless. You can amuse people at great expense. Hospitality is when you take your blessings and you use them to invite people in and to get to know them and to have them get to know you and to be able to share wisdom or to be able to work on something together. This idea of fellowshipping, of blessing each other. You're not just amusing each other. Amusing is about not musing, right? It's about not thinking. A museum is a place you go to think. An amusement park is a place you go to not think. 
Right? That's what these places are. And so, the idea of hospitality is distinct from entertaining people. is about seeking to share blessings and to seek to grow in unity and ability to do good works. Having children is an investment. Deploy capital. Have children. Investing in income-producing property, buying companies, real estate, machines, tools. Right? If you increase your productivity by getting any of those things, you're taking money and you're exchanging it for something that produces. And it produces power that you can use to do other good works to, for other people, or it makes it so you can employ people and disciple them. You're taking the wealth and turning it into more and more productivity. And this is, here's the thing. This is a treadmill. It's a treadmill, and you can't get off the treadmill. It's a merry-go-round, and you can't get off the merry-go-round. You keep deploying things, and it keeps resulting in more. There's a blessing on tithing. You tithe, and you get more things. You go, God, I was trying to get rid of this stuff. And you're taking it, and you're giving me more of it. And he goes, I know. I'm going to give you more, and you're going to give me more, and then I'm going to give you more. Right? There's this, I'm investing, and I, I don't want to have too much stuff. Yeah, that's how it works. You get more stuff, and you use it. In Ecclesiastes, it talks about how the more wealth there is, the more mouths there are that feed upon it. Now, in the context of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is talking there from a perspective of under the sun, and he's saying, this is fruitless, this is, I can't ever get to a place where I get to just relax. Yeah, that's the point. As you have resources, you're given opportunity to serve. Giving to others, not bribes, but being generous. Giving to others to bless them and help them to do other good works. Investing in having more time by hiring servants. Okay? You, you, people hear this and they go, okay, that's real great. Yeah, it sounds like a rich person thing to do. Okay, you ever hire a plumber? You ever pay anybody to make you a meal? Okay, those are all hiring of servants. You are paying people to do work for you to save you time or to do something better than you thought you could do it. And so as you increase in having resources, you seek to save time and you deploy money. Free will offerings for good work. Paying to help disciple, evangelize, to do mercy work. Helping the orphan and the widow, the person who's having a hard time. How much is too much? As much as you can manage well and serve others with is the right amount. If you do not know how to manage it all, hire help. Then use excess for liberality and free will offerings and investment to be managed by others. You can help other people to start a company. You can help other people to be able to do good work, to use their talents, to get the tools they need. You can help other people to go faster on those paths in a way that will also give you ownership and increase what you're able to get. These are Things to do that are not hoarding. Now, here's another thing about the stuff that you pile up. How much is too much to pile up? Okay, look at uh, Roman numeral 9 there. Enough to consume for a year is not too much. How do we know this? At one point in time, not anymore, God commanded a Sabbath year where you weren't allowed to work for the year. And get this, every 50 years, you'd have a Sabbath year and then a Jubilee year. 
So how much did you need to make it through that time of rest? Two years. Having enough stuff to make it so that you could have everything you need for two years is not too much stuff. It's not too much savings. It's not too much piled up silver or gold or bullets or beans. Well, how about how about this? How about enough for seven years? Well, think about this. That would eliminate the idea of using the seven-year period for work and having that seventh year as a time of rest. The idea of working for that time. So if you make it so you have a prolonged period where you are just resting, you're doing it wrong. God gives us more resources, not for a vacation, but for a promotion. And you can take rest, you can take vacations, you can enjoy things, but the idea that you take a really long time not working You are being idle. You are wasting your life. You are wasting resources. You are wasting gifts and talents. Life is short. And there is eternal reward for the good works you do here. So use that well. Breaks should be enough time where you regain strength. And for not that long of a rest, you should start to be itching for work. And that resting, if you rest, like think about what was the one-year Sabbath about? What were you supposed to do then? The work of study and writing and learning and discussing and worshiping. And the idea was there that you were, it was sort of like a time to study, to go work on things that were not the production of material goods. Just like our one day in seven Sabbath now. Okay, so what should be done? Should we make less profit? No. You deploy the profits for good works, and you take on increased responsibility through service, and that's glorifying God. Don't do it in a self-glorifying way. Okay, so here's a danger. You're very rich. You have a lot of resources. How can you do it in a self-glorifying way? In Rome, they had what was called the patronage system. And in the patronage system, ultimately, the republic started to collapse because you started to have men that were very wealthy that essentially owned the voting base. So you had Crassus and Pompey and Julius Caesar as major figures, for example, who would use military victories for their own glory, use their public service for their own glory, and use wealth for their own glory. When Crassus died trying to seek glory for himself, guarding the Parthians out east, that left Caesar and Pompey. And what they did was they both sought to use a patronage system paying for people's loyalty to be able to control the political system. That idea of just using money for power in a direct way, in a self-glorifying way, not in a way to advance truth and wisdom, not in a way to advance the law of liberty, the royal law that is God's law, but an attempt to gain power for oneself. That is a self-glorying way to use money. You can use money for power, but if you're not pursuing to use that power to serve for the glory of God and to see the law of God established in the land, 
then you are seeking self-glory. And so that idea of using these things for service and being careful to differentiate between self-glorifying and God-glorifying in that service. Now, poverty. How do you avoid poverty? So we just talked about if you get in lots of stuff, what do you do to avoid excess? Well, with poverty, first of all, don't be idle. Work six days a week to gain, improve, manage, beautify, and enjoy blessings. Work hard. Not with eye service, but as to the Lord. Live quorum Deo. God's face is everywhere. Live before His face. Recognize that He is watching, and that He is watching your soul. He is watching your actions. He knows it all. So work like He's watching. And pray for the blessing of God on the work. Here are some dangers to fall into that will cause poverty. We've read about these throughout Proverbs. The love of oils, the love of wine, the love of women and giving your strength to them. Not a wife, not a woman, women. The love of play and laughter, bad company, the gang and the harlot. Honoring of self before getting a servant, building the house before getting the fields in order. There's order of operations. These are the things that we have to look at that are things that can cause poverty. So, we move past that initial section, and that's the confession of Agur, and it's the prayer of Agur, and we end up with getting into the seven numerical sayings of Agur. These are structured with a single verse that sort of begins the first part, and then a single verse that begins the second part. So we're going to try to see if we can get through the first part. Probably not going to make it here. Um, in fact, we're going to not go into this today. Forgive me. We're out of time. Next time we'll be starting into this, we'll be looking at the sayings, the numerical sayings, and what we're going to see is that there are things here that talk about the dangers of covetousness for a king and also the dangers of having covetous subordinates, and the dangers of rebelliousness, both that are potentially encouraged by a man seeking to be king, the current king, or people that are under him. And so we will be thinking about some of the appetites and tendencies that lead to disorder and the destruction of the social order that God has created. So, pausing there, comments, questions, objections from the voting members, and those with speaking rights.